In my email inbox, I have special folders for certain categories. This is considered best practice for those who get tons of emails a week. In my inbox, there is a folder for outreach. There's one for faith formation, which makes sense. They are my ministry areas. I have one for correspondence with guest speakers and their booking agencies, one for documents received from our grant partners, a folder for special projects I'm working on, a folder for sermon talkback questions, and then there's this other folder. This folder doesn't have an obvious name like the others. Its title is not as straightforward. If you were to stumble upon my inbox, you may think to yourself, I wonder what's in there. This folder got its name from a common theme that comes up in a certain genre of emails I receive. These emails come in at all hours of the day and night from a diverse group of people with a similar message. Dear Pastor Mia slash Myers Park Baptist Church, I write you out of concern for the souls of the many people who are and have been blinded by all your lies and the deceit of Satan. God has laid such heaviness on my heart to pray that you will return back to God, repent, and be delivered from your sin. That's from Brenda, signed from one sinner to another. Tom, a real estate agent who frequents the Myers Park neighborhood as well as my email inbox says, this week, I happen to have to drive by your spectacle of a church again. I did notice you left up your little rainbow flags with the favorite liberal buzzwords on it, inclusivity and diversity. The activists that have infiltrated and hijacked it can call it a church all they want. It ain't a church. It's just another obscenity on the face of the earth and a complete sham. In 10 years, your church won't even be there. In a short rant following our participation in the 2019 Pride Parade, April says, as a pastor... It is your job to preach the truth. The Bible does not change. You better go back and read your Bible again because you will have a special seat in hell. You're going to burn in hell for not preaching the truth from the Bible. Hell. That's the name of the folder. For all the countless times I have been sent to hell via email and Twitter, and I just have one question, beloved. Is there bottomless bourbon in hell? Because I will be on the first flight on out of here, I promise you. Look, this is not a pity party. Please don't crowd our emails this week with messages of sympathy because then I'll have to create another folder called sympathy and I don't really feel like doing that, but I will accept bourbon donations on behalf of the entire staff, of course. 
When we get these emails, we are often told to ignore them. It's almost like a badge of honor to be unbothered, to be able to turn away from the disruption, to refuse to respond to the madness you see in the comment section of an article about our church. They are not worthy of your response, people say. Don't mind them. They are not well. They mean to suggest that these disruptors are mentally unwell as if they're five paragraphs of rambling about how liberalism will be the death of our church is indicative of a compromised or alternate state of mind. This dangerous train of thought not only equates those who are vehemently antagonistic toward our ministries with those who are living with very serious mental health conditions, this train of thought takes the onus off of the perpetrators and puts it on one of the widely experienced conditions found in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. I know you did not come here for a psychology class today, but this train of thought, this is what many interpreters of the New Testament have done with the presence of demons and unclean spirits in the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Particularly those who lean away from reading the Bible literally. In our discomfort with demonology, Demon talk. Many have overgeneralized the various encounters Jesus has with ill people and with demons and with persons who are possessed by unclean spirits. And in that conflation, many either rush to conclude that Jesus' healing ministry involved curing those with mental health challenges, or we dismiss this portion of Jesus' ministry altogether, suggesting that the casting out of demons is actually metaphorical for dismantling systems of oppression. So often, we make the move to attempt to cast out demonic theories, big ideas. It is an intellectual activity that makes us feel good about ourselves, and it's not for naught. We boldly name the demonic forces of racism a big idea. We boldly call out the diabolical powers of patriarchy and all its evil spawn. Yes, we cast them out. We say, come out of you, Washington, D.C., and come out of you, Wall Street. But we are obsessed with these big ideas, with the metaphorical and institutional demons with advocacy and philanthropy and a brand of activism that keeps us and the unclean spirits at arm's length. But Jesus doesn't bypass individuals to attack systems. He dealt with individuals to attack systems, often one-on-one. On one. Thus, 
when the unpure spirits creep into our mailboxes and inboxes and direct messengers, what are we to say to these things? Do we just ignore them? Is our hefty financial contribution to justice organizations enough to exorcise these systemic evil spirits? Are we ever to engage in the kind of confrontational discourse set off by them? What are we to say to these things? In 1897, a congregational minister serving in Topeka, Kansas, published a novel called In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? A leader in the social gospel movement, Charles Sheldon, tells the story of a town that is revolutionized when Christians pledge themselves for an entire year not to do anything without first asking the question, what would Jesus do? Sheldon didn't know that this titular query would resurface almost a century later when a youth leader from Michigan would turn the question into a fashion statement. I I know I'm not the only one who got excited when they got their What Would Jesus Do bracelet back in the early 90s when the athletes had WWJD monogrammed on their sneakers and their cleats, when churches would sell What Would Jesus Do t-shirts after service as a fundraiser. And I also remember it not being about collectivism. I remember it not being about setting the captives free as Sheldon might have intended, but about other agendas that drifted toward theological conservatism. Nonetheless, I find myself drawing on Sheldon's question as we sit With the impure spirits that accost us from time to time, what are we to say to these things? Do we just say nothing? What would Jesus do? We meet a newly baptized Jesus in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. After being thrown into the wilderness for some time, he re-enters society following the arrest of John the Baptist. You heard last week about his recruitment of the fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, asking them to leave everything behind to follow him. Although he hasn't done anything major yet to prove himself worthy of being followed, he has already garnered a small crowd by the time he steps into the village assembly in Capernaum and begins teaching on the Sabbath. This area The synagogue was not quite what you or I may imagine a temple to be. There are no doors to hold people in or to keep people out. No security cameras or safety ministries. Village assemblies were not like the major temple people traveled to. I know it's hard for us to believe because there's literally a church on every corner in this city, but if you weren't at a major temple, you worshiped in a gathering area and there were less barriers for worship. 
Anyone could presumably stumble into the gathering area at any time for any reason. Thus, in the midst of Jesus' teachings, a man with an unclean spirit enters the assembly and disrupts the proclamation moment. I don't know if you've ever experienced a disruption in a church service before. A few years ago, I was attending a service on the Sunday before Christmas, and the pastor was preaching about Mary, mother of Jesus, and he referred to her as an unwed teenage mother. A disgruntled woman seated in the back of the sanctuary filled with 2,000 people stands up and yells back at the preacher, calling him a liar and a false prophet. You can imagine this is quite a scene. A, a back and forth ensues and, and some congregation members are murmuring and some are gasping and the preacher steps into professor mode and starts rattling off all of the information he knows from the gospels and historical accounts that would thus confirm that Mary was in fact unwed at the time of her pregnancy announcement and most likely between the ages of 13 and 15 years old. The woman, relentless in her outburst, was forcibly removed by the security team, and the congregation erupted in applause. After that incident, I tried my best to imagine what I would have done in that situation. How would I have responded? Would I have been ready to call out the disruptive spirit? Or would I have stumbled, struggling to find the word, startled by the very nature of the encounter? I know I am not the only one who struggles to find responses in the middle of an argument, but wakes up in the middle of the night two weeks later with a laundry list of rebuttals and rebukes. I know I'm not the only one who wakes up and says, I should have I said that when he said this. At least with angry emails, we have time for rumination. Jesus, in the middle of what might have been his first act of public ministry, is accosted by this man possessed with what some translations call a vile or foul spirit. Scholar Stephen Joris reminds us that in the Gospel of Mark, there are several accounts of demons, demon possession, and unclean spirits. The most disputed expression that appears is pneumati e cartharto, which occurs several times. Scripture also repeatedly distinguishes the state of being demon-possessed from the state of being ill. In at least 17 places in the Gospels and Acts, that distinction was made, which means that unclean spirit doesn't always mean unwell spirit, that the unclean spirits know exactly what they're saying and when they're saying it. And, and so Jesus pays attention to these demons often. Jesus pays attention to this unique thing. And, and so crying aloud in the gathering place, this man shouts, Jesus, Nazarene, what business do you have here with us? I know who you are. I 
know what you are up to. You are the Holy One of God and you have come to destroy us. This unclean spirit recognizes the relatively unknown Jesus calling him by name, shouting, you have come to destroy us. So much of the antagonism bestowed upon those of us who choose to live into and preach liberation and justice sounds a lot like this unclean spirit. Our antagonists are so concerned that we are coming to destroy them. We are coming to destroy white men, Tom the realtor says. We are coming to demolish the sanctity of marriage, April says. We are coming to obliterate the faith, Brenda says. Unclean spirits. They are not lacking in the ability to articulate their concerns. Their rambling is reasonable. Their critique is clear. They call us by name, Holy One of God. I know who you are. Pastor Mia, I know who you are. Myers Park Baptist Church, I know who you are. They know us, the demons. And in this moment of outbursts, in this moment of public confrontation, Jesus doesn't move the hate mail to the trash folder. He doesn't signal to the security ministry to remove this man from the gathering place. Maybe because he's new to the scene or because he's not quite burned out yet from the going back and forth with his adversaries, Jesus doesn't fall into the expectations we've created around a disruption-free worship service. Instead, he counters what is offered. Be quiet, Jesus says. Get out of him. I like how the King James Version for once puts it. Hold thy peace and come out of him. So dramatic. And it is written that the afflicting spirit threw the man into violent spasms, protesting loudly and got out. In reading this, it seems so simple, so quick, so routine. Perhaps I should just start responding to every angry email, hold thy peace and come out of him and see what happens. I ponder why the author is so intent on introducing his audience to this chaos so early on in Jesus's ministry. Exorcisms are common practice across various cultures and faith traditions, and after years of exposés chronicling abusive exorcistic practices in the Catholic Church and beyond, and, and with jarring depictions like those found in the 1973 film The Exorcist, it's hard for us to imagine why Mark would lead with this. Mark's obsession with Jesus' casting out ministry continues throughout the book. Jesus commonly rebukes unclean spirits and twice commands them to get out. James Legrand offers that this exorcism in 
a Galilean synagogue can be described as the archetypal miracle for Mark's gospel. This is a miracle for Mark. The exorcism shows that the Messiah is ready to do battle against the forces of evil as the new age is ushered in. From the very beginning, the author is trying to make his audience understand just how disruptive Jesus's ministry was, how unshaken he was in the face of evil, how he commanded space and time, forcing boldness to flee in his presence. But what does the exorcism say to us? What does this moment reveal to the modern community at the beckoning of a revolution? Immediately after the unclean spirit is expelled, the crowd is amazed, asking one another, what is this, a a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Beloved, I wonder if this scene could be about something more than Jesus' one-man show in the synagogue? Could it be more than broadcasting his healing capabilities or, or showing his messianic might? Perhaps it isn't about the exorcism at all, but about the ways his confidence awakens something in the community that has been dormant. The crowd didn't seem shaken by the act of expulsion. They seemed more amazed by his authority, by the way Jesus took control of the moment. Because when you walk in confidence, others awaken to their own. Even the demons wake up when you walk in the room. They call you by name and in public, confirming to everyone that you are living in your truth and your truth is connected to community and your truth is connected to liberation. I have to believe that, yes, while there were some people in the crowd excited about the unexpected perceived magic show that had just happened, I believe others were excited about his boldness to go against the laws and preach on the Sabbath, to teach on the Sabbath, or perhaps they were excited by his boundless hospitality, his ability to deal with the spirit rather than shoo it away. But I believe that there were others among the crowd, his newly minted followers, perhaps, who saw Jesus standing firm in his truth in the face of disgruntled opposition, commanding authority and exercising precision, and something in them was awakened. Something in them was aroused up. Something in them was inspired to join the communal work of holy confrontation. And in some cultures, this holy confrontation comes in the form of dancing and singing and banging on drums because because exorcism is a communal activity. 
Exorcism is a community activity that is celebrated. The task of expelling requires the efforts of many, not just one. So perhaps Jesus's pedagogical performance wasn't a show and tell for the leaders of the synagogue, but rather an invitation to Simon and Andrew and James and John and others to join in the work of holy confrontation. Perhaps it's an invitation to those of us who need to be reminded of our covenantal duty to accept controversy as a reality of life together and an opportunity for growth toward maturity. And yes, this work happens on Sunday mornings and in Zoom Bible studies and during protest and pride marches, but it also happens at the dinner table. It happens in the inbox and in the mailbox. It happens on occasion in the comment section of an article on The Observer. It happens during moments of discomfort when we are forced to discern whether we should lean into quarrel or whether we should just protect our energy. Perhaps. This passage is not an invitation to attempt to heal or cure, to become demonological exports or exorcists. Maybe this passage is an invitation to confront, to cast out, to say, hold thy peace to those who come against our work of liberation until justice rolls on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And I recognize, friends, that while Jesus dealt with unclean spirits and demons throughout his ministry, there are times when he accepted that some fights weren't worth it. I recall him telling his disciples to kick the dust off their feet when they are not welcome somewhere. He understood the importance of discernment, of knowing when to rise up and when to fall back, when to challenge and when to move on. I pray that we may exercise that same discernment that we may know when to rise up and when to fall back, when to challenge for the sake of life and when to move on for the sake of life. And so it is. I visit my hell folder on occasion as a reminder of the call to do justice and holy confrontation. And don't get me wrong, I have a folder for gratitude as well. So all of the well wishes and the positive comments, they have a home too. Life is a balance after all. But I visit the hell folder because sometimes we need to be reminded of the invitation to lean in to conflict and controversy and confrontation for the sake of life. So may your discernment carry you forward in these trying times and chaotic seasons. May it be so. Amen.